0: every week as we've been doing this pre-campaign, Pastor John has been taking us through an overview of, of these four chairs that are up here. The, the idea of four-chair discipleship was introduced to me about six years ago. Um, and, and I saw it and was kind of going, okay, it sounds kind of cool. It sounds like a good thing, but I mean, it's just, just another model of discipleship. And then I, I got the book, and I'm like, alright, let me read through it. Start reading through it, and I'm going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Something is different here than what I've seen before. Wow, this is this is a pretty cool thing, and so I keep reading, and I read it again. <laughs> I don't like to read, so when I read something again, there is something to it. So I, I read this again, and I'm going, man, i got to get my leaders in on this. So I take our leaders, our adult leaders, and our youth ministry through it, because it is important to me that we understand this. Here's, here's the basis of it. There's a man named Dan Spader who, who uh, founded um, a ministry called Sun Life that is all about equipping churches uh, in discipling people. And as he was studying, as he was being discipled, uh, he started understanding that Jesus gave us a model for discipleship, and that's what the four-chair discipleship is. And we're going to go through that as a church through this campaign, but I want to give you a quick overview of it again, because I think it is a powerful thing for us to understand this model, because today we're going to be talking about what the actual mission is. So so we start with chair one over here. We've got two chairs there, and I'll explain that in a minute, but this chair one is what we call the come-and-see chair. This is the chair where, where we have Jesus who's got guys that are following him, and he turns to them and says, what do you want? And they said, we want to know where you're living. We want to know where you're staying. And he says, come and see. One of those guys is Andrew. Andrew runs to his brother Simon after meeting with Jesus, and he goes, Simon, we found the Messiah. Come and see. All of them together go to Simon's hometown and they run into Philip, and Jesus uh, meets Philip, and Philip gets excited because he sees who this is, and he runs and finds Nathaniel. He goes in, and he tells Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. Nathaniel's a little skeptical, and here's Philip's answer, come and see. I love it because it's, it's the chair that we invite somebody. Just come and see what Jesus is about. Not come and see my church, come and see this event. Come and see what Jesus is about. Maybe it's at my church, but mostly it's got to be in my life. Come come and see who Jesus is based upon the way that I live and walk with him. That's the heart of this chair. It's why, it's why there's two chairs there. Is because when I invite someone to come and see, I'm going to sit with them. Sometimes that means physically. Sometimes that means I have to get into their perspective of, okay, if we're going to listen to a sermon or a message or do a study, I've got to look at this from their perspective and see what they're seeing so that I can walk with them in this. Because my goal is to get them into chair two. See, chair one, come and see, that's for someone who doesn't, has not put their faith in Christ. Chair two is the follow me chair. This is where Jesus looked at those disciples and he said, okay, not just come and see, follow me. Now we think, okay, just head in the same direction, but Jesus actually said this, put your feet where mine have been. It's like when you were little and your dad would go out in the deep snow and he'd put the big footprints in it so that you could walk through without sinking, right? That's what Jesus said is, put your feet where mine have been. Mimic me. Follow me. Do as I have done so when he said, follow me, he's saying, I, I, I have this image, and the image that, that Jesus is, is the image of God that we're created in. It's this perfection. And he says, here's the thing, your sin has broken that image, and I want you to put your feet where mine have been to start walking back in that image that you were created in, like Christ. So we, we get into chair two, and we are called to follow him. But here's the crazy thing. At that point, most of us kind of go, all right, so it's about my growth. But here's what's amazing. The first time you start following Jesus, guess what you see? That he's not just about the one who, who's following him. He's about the next one, too. And so your heart is going to start changing. You're going to go, okay, so I'm taking steps with him. Who do I need to invite to come and see? And when they come and see, I'm going to tell them, hey, as I walk, Jesus told me to follow him. I'm putting my feet where his have been. Now you put your feet where mine have been, and I will follow him as you follow me. This is what Paul did with Timothy. You follow me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is the heart of discipleship. And when we have somebody who's now from chair two inviting people into chair one and starting to progress forward, they step into chair three, which is uh, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This is where our focus gets off of just our own growth and onto who's next. Who do we have that that I need to be inviting? And suddenly you start seeing generational discipleship going on, where you're not only bringing somebody from chair one to chair two, but now you're training them up on how they can get to chair three and getting their focus on, hey, look who's behind you that you could be bringing in. This is the heart of it, and we're going to go over it today because what's cool is when you start seeing this generational discipleship go on, you you step into chair four, and chair four is go and bear fruit. This is the place where we feel like we've arrived, and we get to kind of settle down and eat some of the grapes. (laughs) That's not how it works. Chair four is probably the place that has the most work, but it is also the most fulfilling place to be. In John 10, 10, when Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest, this is what he's talking about is you want to experience the fullness of life that I, have, uh, that I have for you? It is found in walking with me and bearing fruit. There is nothing more fulfilling than it. So I encourage you as we go through this, we're going to break these down one at a time and help us understand how they work in practical ways. But I want you to, to remember that this is the progression we're working towards as we, we look and try to follow the model of Jesus in making disciples. So as we look at the mission today, I want to I start just with a little example here for you. Let's say you have a friend who has uh, inherited a bunch of money, and they come to you, and they're super excited about it, and they say, hey, I've got this idea. I'm going to go and start a shoe company, and you're thinking, okay, kind of random, but whatever, shoe company, go for it. So they're excited, and they say, in a year, I'm going to come back, and I want you to ask me how it's going because I'm so excited about the potential of this. They go, they buy this big warehouse, they hire a bunch of people, and they say, okay, make shoes. And, and over the year, uh, they're getting excited about what's going on there. You run into them a year later and say, okay, how, how's the shoe company going? Oh, it's awesome. I got a ton of people working there. It's such a cool thing. It's amazing what's going on there. Oh, well, man, show me the shoes that you've made. Oh, well, we haven't actually made any shoes yet. Oh, well, aren't you a shoe company? Well, yeah, but everybody's there and they've got great ideas and everybody's kind of doing their own thing and, and it's exciting. There's a lot happening there. And yeah, we haven't made any shoes yet, but, but we're having a great time together. See, the, the problem is, is that most churches that are focused on disciple making look a lot like this shoe company. We have great intentions, great desires, and absolutely no idea how to accomplish the mission. We don't know what it means to make a disciple or even what one looks like very well. And what we need to wake up to is the fact that Jesus laid it out for us really clearly. And we're going to look at that in Scripture today, how he made the mission simple. He laid it out and gave us instructions on how to do it. I remember when I was in eighth grade, we took our Awana kids from my church uh, to a canyon that was, it's right outside of Pete's, Colorado, where all those windmills are. And right at the base of one of those windmills is the opening of this canyon called Chimney Canyon. So We take all these kids on this hike. It's a fun place to go. Well, I'm in eighth grade, which means I'm out of Awana, and now I'm a leader. Now I can be trusted with things. So I venture out with my own little group of people following me. A seventh grade boy and his dad are following me and a few others. And we start heading out. Now, we have a time that we have to be back. We've got to be back at the bus because we're going to roast food over a fire. We're going to have a good time together. And plus, when the sun goes down, if you're in the canyon, you don't get out of the canyon. It's very dark. <laughs> So I'm walking around with these guys. We're having a great time, loving it. It's been a few hours. I look at my watch. Oh, we got about half an hour. We got to get back. We got to start heading back. We'll make it. It'll be fine. I'm really confident, really excited. Now, something you got to know. Well, here, we'll get to that in a minute. We start heading through the canyon on our way back there, and everybody's loving it. We're still having a great time. About an hour later, we're still walking through the canyon, and I'm going, this is not that big of a canyon, but it's All right. We'll find our way. It's okay. It's good. Nobody's really that worried about it. Two hours go by. Suddenly, everybody's a little worried. I'm thinking, why'd they put the eighth grader in charge? But I can't show my, you know, weakness in this. I'm an eighth grader, confident. And I'm just hiking through going, no, guys, we're fine. We'll get out. The sun's starting to go down. The seventh grade boy's crying. I'm like, come on, man. Like, we can do it. I look, and I'm like, there it is. There's our way out. I start heading right up and out because it's like, oh, we can climb this, we can get out of it. It's kind of just like where we came in. It's got to be right by it. I climb up over this, come up over the last little ridge of it, and and there laying right in front of me is a rotting cow carcass with a skull just staring right at me, and I'm thinking, that's it, we're dead. It's over, we're never getting out. Now, we climb out right there, and, and we're looking around, and it's just this open field. There's nothing there. And I'm going, where are we? In the distance, we hear this faint sound of honking. It was the bus about a mile and a half away. (laughs) We had gone the wrong direction, confidently, you know, but we'd gone the wrong direction. Now, here's what's really sad is every single time we went there, we parked the bus right at the base of one of those windmills, and you can see it from anywhere in the canyon. But my eighth grade confident self didn't want to look at that windmill. The mission to accomplish it had been laid out perfectly, but it's like I just missed that. I didn't think of that. We are alive. We did survive. We're all here, so it's, it's okay. I knew what the mission was, but I did not know how to accomplish it, even though it should have been clear. And this is where I believe we are as a church. We have our mission statement. We know the terminology, but we don't realize that the steps to accomplish it are laid out for us by Jesus himself. So we're going to look at those today. If you've got your Bible, open up uh, to Matthew twenty-eight nineteen through 20. This is going to be a really familiar passage to many of you. This is known as the Great Commission. Okay, so here's, here's what's happening here. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. He's standing on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem and he's invited his disciples to come and he's giving his final charge to them. And this is what he says in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen through 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, if you've ever done a deeper study into the Great Commission, you may know that it's not just one command. It's actually two commands and three verbs, three action words. And so we're going to break those down and kind of look at each one of them to help us understand how he's laid this out for us. So command number one is this, make disciples. Well, we know that, of course but do we really understand that? Do do we understand how important making disciples was to the life of Jesus? Do you understand how how focused he was on this? So often we talk about Jesus with the crowds, right? We think of Jesus feeding the 5,000. We think of him preaching to these huge masses of people. Did you know that only 17 times Jesus is mentioned with crowds of people, but there's 46 times that it specifically mentions in the Gospels that Jesus was with his small group of disciples. This is important for us to realize because making disciples was the heartbeat of his ministry, and he showed that with how intentional he was with his time here. Because of his focus of making these few disciples, we get to see the result in the book of Acts says, within two years of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, which was just a few days after this, Jerusalem is filled with Jesus' teachings in two years. In four and a half years, they've planted multiplying churches and developed multiplying disciples. In 18 years, it says that they turned the world upside down. 28 years later, Paul writes this in Colossians 1.6, this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard it and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. That's amazing. The things that were accomplished in such, honestly, a very short amount of time. It's exciting to see that, but here's my question. Why did Jesus just not just make more disciples? Like, he had thousands of people following him, There are times that he like gets on a boat to go across the lake and the crowds of thousands run around the lake to beat him there, because they want to follow him. Why did he not just take advantage of that and just make more disciples? You see, this is the common thought of Christianity today, especially in the United States. But I think it's because we've misunderstood something. We've confused something. We love success, and Jesus' model does not sound like success. But the modern church model does. See, in the modern church, here's what we do. We like to pick someone to be the face of our church. Somebody who, who, when people see them on a screen or see them out and about, they go, oh yeah, that's that pastor from this church. We like them to, to be more of a public figure than a shepherd, more of an influencer than a pastor. And, and we think that will work because it'll get people into the church. It'll, it'll get our likes up online. Whatever it is, we, we focus on these kind of models, because it feels successful. When I was in Colby, Kansas for the five years before I came here, there was a church that was a city over from us, and, and they, uh, they had this vision. Their pastor had a vision, and here's what it was. I want to see 4,000 people in our church. That was his vision, and I'm going, okay, for what purpose? Then we'll have 4,000 people in our church, So here's what they did. They started planting churches in all of the towns around so that they could start building up this congregation and say that there were 4,000 people associated with their church. And I was going, okay, but why? Well, then we'll have 4,000 of them. Okay, great, so then what are you going to do with them? Then they're going to be here, so they're here. (laughs) And that's it. See, that's the problem is when we look at it this way, we miss a lot of the point and it doesn't sound anything like what Jesus did and there's a reason why but but we're still we keep getting sucked into this over and over and over and over again going but if people are here that's good enough that's what we need that's what we want and and i love that people come to church don't get me wrong on that but that is not what we're called to that's not the mission just to get a bunch of people into your church that's not it let me show you how these models work side by side just so, to help you understand because we, you may still be confused going, I don't understand how, how having thousands of people in your church doesn't work. Let me explain how this works, okay? We're going to start with our modern church model, okay? So let's take 10 evangelists, and they're winning 1,000 people a day to Christ, 10 people that are so good at sharing the gospel and presenting it really well that people respond every time and they together are winning 1,000 people a day to Christ. That sounds like an exciting ministry to be part of, right? 1,000 people a day coming to Christ and their goal is to reach the world. It sounds accomplishable, right? sounds like it can be done. We've got 7.61 billion people on the planet, 1,000 people a day, let's get it done. Now some of you are going, (laughs) I've taken math classes, I know how this ends. You see, To reach 7.61 billion at that rate of 1,000 a day, it would take 1,753 years for them to accomplish this mission. We got a problem. (laughs) That only happens if no one else is ever born. 1,753 years. See, what seems really successful at first, it, it takes a lot longer than you think to accomplish this, But let's look at at Jesus' model. Let's, instead of 10 evangelists, let's say we got 10 disciples that are going to replicate themselves once a year. That means after one year, we've got 20 disciples. They're going to make a disciple who will then make disciples, so we've got 20 at the end of year one. We're way behind the other model. Year five, we have 320. We're still super far behind the other model. Year 10, 10, 10,240. We're still really far behind. Year 15, 327,680. Year 20, 10,485,760. Year 25, 335,544,320. That's the population of the United States. Year 30, 10,737,418,240 disciples. In 30 years, it goes 3 billion beyond what we currently have on the planet. Realize this. Like, that is an insane amount of growth, but see, this is the difference between addition and multiplication. You see, Jesus' model seems slower, but it really is exponentially faster, and it is deeper and it is exactly what we're called to. And it's why we're focusing on this is because if we're just going to look and say, oh, all I got to do is just get my, get my friends to church and that's it. We're going to miss it. <laughs> it's going to take us too long to accomplish what we've been set out to do. We got to start working on making disciples who make disciples, this multiplication strategy that we need. So, so we're going to look at this. this is, that's the first command that we're given in the Great Commission is to make disciples. So we're going to move on from that. And now look at the three action words. The first one that we see is this word go. Now, when we hear go, when Jesus says go and make disciples, here's what most of us do. We go, I'm in. I'll do that. When's the next mission trip? Let me sign up right now. I will go. I'm ready to go. We automatically think going means I have to pack up and go somewhere. But did you know that Jesus did not actually use the word go as in go somewhere? His term that we translate as go actually was this. As you are going, in your everyday, regular life, make disciples. As you walk around Walmart, make disciples. I know that one's hard. As you, as you eat lunch today, make disciples. As you go to work, make disciples. Think about this. It's different than what we often think. And here's the problem is, we see the term great commission. And we go, okay, a great commission, that's going to take great people with great gifting and great presentation of a message to go out and do these great things. And, and Jesus goes, I didn't call it the great commission. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Don't get caught up in the word great and think that it's something beyond you. It's simple. It's easy and you're called to it. But it's an everyday thing. Don't get caught up in that word great. The second command that we have in this is baptize. Okay, so we've made the disciples. Now we've got to mark them, right? And so baptism is something that we in the modern church seem to have misunderstood. We treat baptism in ways that range from false to flawed, and the, and the biblical model of baptism seems to be lost somewhere in the middle of it. Now, I just finished reading through the book of Acts with a bunch of our students, and, and what's amazing is baptism is everywhere in there. It's a constant thing. When someone was saved, boom, they were baptized right then and there. It was clearly not what saved them. It was, it was the outward or public declaration of their inward faith. But at no time did I see it say this. Paul scheduled out a baptism service, and those who were scheduled to be baptized made sure that grandma was able to make it there, and those whose grandmas could not come had to wait until the next service. That might be in the book of Second Hesitations, but it was not in the book of Acts, okay? Second Hesitations is not a real book. Don't start flipping there, okay? But I want you to understand, like, we, we are, I'm, I'm so guilty of this. Where somebody comes to me and says, well, hey, I want to be baptized. I go, okay, well, let's start the process. What process? See, I've missed the point of what baptism is. I think a lot of us have. We've made it this, this kind of family occasion, this special ceremony. That's not what it's about, I love that that we've got Paul sitting in prison singing hymns and the the walls start shaking and the chains fall off and the doors open up and the guard comes rushing in. He's about to take his own life. And, And Paul says, no, don't do that. And the guy says, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I love that when the man puts his faith in Christ, he takes Paul, he takes the two guys to his house, he starts treating their wounds, and then in the middle of the night... Paul takes him and his family who have put their faith in Christ down to the river and baptizes them. Maybe you can't even see what's in the nasty river at that point, but he's doing it. He's baptizing them because here's what baptism was. It was standing up publicly and saying, hey, This, this is who I follow. It's where Jesus said, you want to be my follower? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. I'm denying myself by publicly standing up and saying, I am associated with him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I'm publicly saying that. It's not about me anymore. I live for him. It's me taking up my cross and saying, I am willing to be labeled as guilty, associated with Jesus it's, it's this public declaration to the body of Christ that they can look and say, now I have somebody else who's going to walk with me in this faith, who's ready to work. Let's do this together. Let's start going. Let's start doing this. It's also a public declaration to those around you who don't know Christ that they look and say, okay, so if I wanted to know about Jesus, this is someone standing up saying they're going to represent him now. See, that's what baptism is. And we try to make it this thing that it's not. But we're called to baptize and understand this. Baptism is a command. Jesus commanded it. That means it's not this optional thing that one day I might get around to. We have to do it. It's an act of obedience to publicly stand up and declare, I'm his. I'm joining him. I was dead in my sins and I've been raised to new life just as he was buried and raised. That's what it is. The last verb, the last action word that we have is to teach. Teach them to obey. We, we've made disciples. We've marked disciples. Now we multiply the disciples here. Jesus said, teach them all I have commanded you. Teach them to obey all I have commanded you. Jesus gave over 400 commands in the Gospels. And over, over half of those are disciple-making commands. So here's what the church does. We, we see all these commands, and this is what the church does. We, we write curriculum. We set up Bible studies, and and we we teach classes on it. I'm not going to say that these are bad things, but they're the wrong way to do this. It's not that they're not important. It's not that we should stop doing them. But, But here's the thing. Those are a great way to teach what the commands are, to teach what he did and said. But Jesus didn't do it that way. We need to remember that that word go, remember, it's not this, I've got to go somewhere, it's as I'm going in my everyday life. This is where the intentionality of Jesus is huge. He didn't just teach them the what he was commanding, but showed them how to live it out as he followed the guidance and wisdom of the Father in the strength of the Spirit, doing these same things. He showed them, and he's saying, this is what I need you to do. I need you to teach them what it is and show them how? Because he didn't just say, teach them my commandments. He said, teach them to obey, to follow these, which means they need to see the example. This is where it's, hey, follow me as I follow him. I will follow these commandments. I'm going to tell you, this is why I'm doing this, and this is what it looks like to do that. Jesus was so intentional in this. He, he spent time with his disciples. He encouraged them. He ate with them. He talked to them. He invited them into his regular life. This is how he did it, making disciples, though. It's not the program of the church. It is the mission of the individuals that make up the church. That's what it's supposed to be. I think of the story in Matthew 9 where, where these four friends have taken their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They're doing this come and see thing, and he can't say no. Okay? So they take him. They pick him up. They go on this roof of the house because the house is crowded with people. They tear open the roof, and they drop him down in front of Jesus. Jesus looks up and sees their faith and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Pick up your mat and walk. You're healed. So the guy stands up, rolls up his mat, and walks out through the crowd. That's where the story ends for us with him, right? But I want you to think a little further what that would have been, because we know the man got up and left. He didn't sit there and listen to Jesus after that. He just got up and left, because that's what Jesus told him to do. Do you think his friends just laid up there on the roof looking through the hole going, well, I'm just going to listen to Jesus now. No. They crowd surfed their way out of there and got to the edge so that when their friend came out, they could be the first ones to give him a hug, to let him embrace someone for the first time in his entire life. He's never experienced that, and they want to experience that with him. They would have been the ones who said, well, let's, let's walk home with you. How do you feel? What's it, what's it like? Here, let me show you. Here's what we step on. Here's what we don't step on. Here's how we, here's how we run. Let me show you how to jog. Let's go run together tomorrow. Hey, let me teach you your family trade so that you can start supporting yourself and supporting others. Over the next few years, you can just picture what this relationship would have looked like between these friends as they raised up their friend. This is what discipleship looks like. We have friends that are paralyzed. They don't even know it. And we say, come and see, and Jesus brings them to new life, and now i got to show them, how do you walk? How do you run? How do you start working and supporting yourself? How do you start growing in these areas? That's the picture of discipleship that's supposed to be there. That's what Jesus did, but it takes intentionality, one-on-one, in person. It's important that we personally have this going on. So we've got this command to make disciples. We do this by following those three verbs of go, baptize, and teach, and now we come to the second command. This is one that we often miss. It's a command that we we read differently, but here's what this command is. Be sure. Be sure of what? He said, be sure that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Be sure of this. The words that we often read is just a comfort. They're actually command words, and we need to not ignore that when we regularly are reminding ourselves of his presence and power at work in, through, and around us, we are way more confident to do what he has commanded in the rest of the Great Commission. Some of you have been looking at me weird today because I'm wearing this weird shirt to you. I like this shirt. One of our our young adults, Riley, designed this one. (laughs) She loves it because her and I were talking about prayer one day and how if the promises of God are yes and amen and he promises that he hears us in our prayers... He promises that he is working, he's promised that he's working all things together for our good, that when I pray according to his will, it's a sure thing, bet. It's a sure thing. It's definite. I like wearing shirts like this because it makes people go, what is that about? And I get to share these kind of truths with them. And so I love it because if I know it's a sure thing, I'm way more confident to do it. And if I am sure that Jesus is with me always, I'm way more confident to walk out what he's commanded. That's the heart. That's why he calls us to that, is because it lifts us in confidence to do what it is he's commanded for us to do. So we understand what the mission is, the what of the mission, but maybe you're struggling with the why, the motives. What, what is the motive? Is it is it to have bigger churches? Is it to feel successful? These motives are super common, and they'll always lead to one of two things. They're either going to lead to failure or forsaking. Either we're not going to accomplish it, and we're going to feel like we failed, or it's going to seem really hard, and we're going to give up on it and seek easier reward. We're going to just forsake what our, our vision or goal was in the first place. Because if it's about having bigger churches or just feeling successful, we're, we're never, it's, that's not a reward, that's not, that's not a motive that keeps you going. Those ones fail and fall short every time. But there is a motive that Jesus gave us for this. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. This is where Jesus has been asked this question of, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And here's how he responds. Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So he says, Love. This is the motive that we are to have love for God and love for our neighbor. But what does that really look like? What does loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength look like? How does that work? Well, it's devotion. Now, you may hear that word and go, Well, I do that. I wake up every morning, I have my Bible time, I pray throughout the day. I pray over my meals. I I go through this stuff. I make sure that I'm doing the right things, and and here's the thing. I'm not saying any of those are bad things, but if you're living a checklist life, this checklist of this is what a good Christian does, and if I check off all these boxes, I've done it today, then you are missing the point. That's not devotion. At least that's not devotion to, to a love for God. That's not it. See, the problem is a lot of us base our love for God off of what he's done, we look and we see the incredible works of God, the things that he's done in other people's lives and in our own lives, and we, we love him for that. But here's the problem. When my love for him is based in that, and he doesn't do what I think he should or what he's done before in a situation, I stop loving him. I get frustrated with him. You see, if my wife, Janae, loved me for what I had done, she wouldn't love me. <laughs> it's just how it is. I'm not an easy person to love if it's based on what I've done. But because she knows who I am, that's why she loves me. You see, we don't love God because of what he's done. We are to love him for who he is. Because if I know the character of God, I understand why he's doing what he's doing. It, it helps me when I know what God is like, that when I, I'm going through a situation where, where I see he's not doing what I thought he should or what he thought he would, I don't look at it and say, what, what is happening, God? I'm about to give up on you. I look and I say, it's okay. Because I know God's character. I know his promises. I know what he's about. And here, here's the thing. He is working all these things together for my good. He's bringing me back into the image I was created in. He's, he's pushing me to be more into the image of His Son, Jesus, which is what I'm designed for. And so I'm okay if it doesn't go the way I think it should because here's the thing. I know God, and I know that He is working these, thing, these things together. He, his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. I can trust that, and so I'm going to go with that. You see, it changes those things. And then comes the true devotion is when I know God for who he is, I start understanding what Jesus said when he said, hey, to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and go, that's devotion. It's to say it's not me anymore. It's not about me. It's he who lives in me. It's Christ in me. And I'm gonna pick up my cross. I'm gonna gonna carry whatever it is. I'm gonna be willing to drink from the same cup of suffering that he did for his name's sake, not mine. I'm going to live for his glory. And here's what's amazing is when we start doing that, this loving your neighbor thing is a whole lot easier to understand. A lot of you guys look and say, I do love my neighbors. I do good things for them. I do nice things for them. I talk to them. I love them. That's, That's good. Isn't that what I'm supposed to do? Absolutely. But it doesn't just say love your neighbor. It says love your neighbor as you've loved yourself. So I want you to think about that. If you, out of your love for yourself, realized that you needed a Savior, enough that you were seeking being saved, shouldn't you be seeking that for them too if you love them as you love yourself? Seeking the, the same things that you've sought for yourself. If I knew my need for a Savior and I know that they have the same need, out of my love for myself I sought that, and out of my love for them I'm going to seek that for them as well. I'm going to push. I'm going to reach. I'm going to share. Because do you realize this, that there are people that you interacted with today that are on their way to hell? They are bound for hell. And, and the problem is, is we come to church and we go, oh, it's exciting. Look at all these people that are here. We're counting the wrong numbers, though. There's, there's two things, and, and I'm sorry if this shocks you, but there's two things that the church counts oftentimes. And I'm not just talking this church. I'm talking the church, universal. We count two things. We call them butts and bucks. How many people are sitting in the pews and how many dollars are put in the offering. That's what we count. Because that helps us feel successful. Here's, here's why. Because if, if I count how many people came to Christ last week, it's, not ne- it's never as high a number as the number of people sitting here. It doesn't feel as successful. Right? But see, in our youth ministry a couple years ago, we, we have a database that we, we get to see who is there. But we stopped counting that number and focusing on that number of who came in the door, and we started focusing on some other things because it changed our focus of understanding what it means to love our neighbor. And so I know this because we started counting this. Last year, our students shared the gospel 694 times throughout the year, and they shared those stories with me and with the entire group, and it's an exciting thing because not only did they share the gospel almost 700 times, But a hundred of their friends, family members, teammates, coaches, co-workers came to know to Christ. It's exciting. To me, it's exciting. And here's why it's exciting. It's not because it doesn't matter who comes in our door. It's because when we start focusing on the right things, when we start counting the right numbers, things change. You walk in the door and it doesn't matter how many. It matters that there has been change. It matters that God is at work, and we're excited. I love this year. They set a goal. They want to see 50. They they said this, 25% new conversion growth. What that means is 50 students coming into our youth ministry, putting their faith in Christ, and being put into a discipling relationship with another student who's going to be walking with them. That's their goal this year. That's exciting to me. Our students have shared the gospel in the last eight weeks over 100 times. And they've seen over 20 of their friends put their faith in Christ already and they're starting to disciple them. It's happening because they're loving their neighbor because of their devotion and love for God that they're seeing. They're focusing on the right things and they're catching this mission of come and see, follow me, fish for men, bear fruit. That's the mission and they're catching this vision and going with it. The question is, are we as a church ready to come alongside and do that same thing? Are we ready to move? Are we ready to go? I believe we are. I believe it's time, but I want to challenge you on this. Do you realize that people around you, you've got family members and coworkers that are bound for hell, do you even realize that? Or do you just walk around going, as long as, I, as long as I don't have to risk myself, I don't really care. We've got to be aware. We've got to start thinking this way, and we've got to go beyond just living the gospel, because while it's important that the gospel is represented in how we live, If we're not going to share it, we're just good people to them. So we've got to open our mouths and share, this is why I live this way. And be willing to proclaim that message of truth. Now, some of you may be sitting in here today going, okay, you talk about people bound for hell, and I'm worried that I might be one of those people because I'm just not sure about this. And I just want to make something super clear to you this, this thing that I talk about, the gospel, means good news. So don't don't get fearful right now. I got good news for you, but it kind of starts in a little bit of a dark way. You see, every single one of us have sinned. We know sin, we, we describe it as bad things we do, but the word sin means to miss the mark. God set a standard. There was a target. Perfection had to be hit. And when we don't hit perfection, we fall short of his glory, and every person in this room has fallen short. We've missed the mark. And because of that, we're separated from God. Now, some people go, why did God distance himself when we needed him most? Why is he so far away now? Doesn't he want to help us? Doesn't he want us anymore? And that's the frustration we have because we don't understand that separation. Here's how it works. Our holy God, to be in the presence of sin, has to pour out his wrath on that sin. And so out of his mercy for us, he separates himself from us to give us an opportunity to come back. It's an amazing thing to do. And so right now, because of your sin, you may be separated from God, and you're looking, so if I have an opportunity to come back, what do I got to do? Do I need to be good? I've been bad, so now i got to be a good person, right? So if my good outweighs my bad in the end, I'm good to go, right? That's not what Scripture says. Book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, It is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by your works so that no one can boast. It's not about how good you can be. It's not about what you do. It's about what he's done. You see, Jesus, God in flesh, came and lived perfectly and gave himself up as a sacrifice because God set a payment. There was a debt, and he said this is what's required to pay it. There has to be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. We try to pay God with good deeds. The book of Isaiah says our good deeds are like filthy rags. You ever had a toddler hand you their napkin to use? It's the nastiest thing you'll be handed in your life. My three-year-old does that he's like dad there's stuff on your face and hands me this sloppy nasty it is gross okay and we come to God and say hope this is good enough I know it's a little messy because it's tainted with my selfishness trying to earn my way it's not about that you can't earn your way but Jesus he paid with the correct currency he shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins Three days later, God raises him from the dead and declares that payment accepted on your behalf. And now, everyone who trusts in Jesus alone can have new life. Everyone who takes all the weight of what it takes to save them and places it on him. That's what faith means, is to take everything, all of the elements that are needed to save you and to hand them to him and say, I trust that you did it. So if you're sitting here today, understand that is all that is required is that you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that when he died, it paid the price for your sins, that when he rose again, it was that payment being accepted and he has the authority and power to give you new life today, right now, and all you have to do is put your faith in him. And If you're ready to do that today, I invite you to do it while we close this time and we celebrate communion. I want you to take some time with you and God and just talk to him about what's going on in your heart. If you got more questions, come and find me afterwards. I want to talk to you. I know I'm weird, and I'm not any less weird, just one-on-one, so just a warning, but it's kind of fun weird. So come and join. Come talk to me. I know, I know some, I, I'm just telling you, just come talk to me, because I love to walk with you through this. Also, if you do put your faith in Christ today, tell someone so that they can start walking with you through this, so they can say, that's awesome, I'm gonna follow Christ, you follow me, I'll show you how this works. Let me teach you how to walk. Let me raise you as a child, you're a baby Christian, let me teach you, let me feed you so that you can learn how to feed yourself. Let me help you when you mess up and and clean you up so that later you can learn to clean yourself and then let me keep training you and raising you so that you can learn to feed someone else and help raise someone else. See, that's the heart. Now you may be sitting here and you've already put your faith in Christ and like I said, we're gonna celebrate in communion. We're gonna remember and celebrate what Christ has done on our behalf where his body has been broken for us and his blood has been shed for you. On your behalf, he did this. But here's what's amazing and here's something I want you to catch from today because as we take communion, I want you to reflect on this, that it wasn't just on your behalf, but it's on behalf of your neighbor. It's on behalf of your family member that doesn't know him. And as we take communion, I want you to be thinking, okay, who else was this blood shed for? Who else was this body broken for? Who do I have in my life that I need to invite, come and see, so that they can experience the joy of getting to celebrate that I have a Redeemer, that I have a Savior, that I have someone who has done the work that I couldn't do, so that I could be brought to a place that I don't deserve to be, and I get it for eternity, and there's nothing that can take that away. Who in your life needs to be sitting next to you in a couple weeks celebrating the same thing that you're getting to celebrate today because God wants to work and move and he's waiting for you to be his witnesses and his ambassadors. So as we carry communion today, as we celebrate in this, think, think beyond just what he has done for you. Reflect, praise him and celebrate what he's done. But remember that he has called you to go beyond your growth and to start thinking of who's the next. And let's start going that way as a church. It's time to grow. It's time to move in the way that he set up. Start making disciples. This is what it's about. It's why he went to the cross. Not just for you, but God so loved the world. All of them. Everyone. So let's think beyond ourselves today as we celebrate this time. I'm going to pray. And then I want you to take communion with those around you. We're going to stand, and We're gonna stand. We're gonna close in song as we, we reflect on what he's done. We reflect on who he is and we celebrate what we believe in this. God, I thank you so much for today for the opportunity to study your word. God, to know more of who you are by seeing your character, seeing what you've called us to. God, knowing that you equip us by your spirit to do this work, to live this out. And God, I just pray that if there's anyone in here who has not put their faith in you God that you would draw them by your spirit to yourself today that today they would respond to you God that they would put their faith in you and stop trusting their own good deeds stop trusting in anything but Jesus and God for those of us that know you as we celebrate communion help us God to remember what you've done for us and to remember that you've done it for our neighbor as well and to love our neighbor as you've called us to we praise you God and thank you